Please spread the word about my shows. I'm an independent creator and I would really appreciate it. I make K-pop guides, as well as I have exclusive interviews with songwriters, journalists, the artists themselves, best new music roundup episodes, artist-specific deep dive episodes, episodes about the history of K-pop, all sorts of content is covered. So to get your fill and support an independent creator, please check out 17 Karat K-pop wherever you get your podcasts, and view an episode guide at howtostand.substack.com. Hello everybody! Welcome back to the Star Seekers Recap, Part 2. Picking up right where we left off, Alistair now enters the hospital room with Lo and DK, and now Alistair's like, yeah, this hospital's not great. Let's get you better treatment elsewhere. He sounds like a frickin' timeshare salesman. Episode 18 starts a new day where the boys awaken in a fancy mansion, literally being catered to, treated like princes, although they keep wondering what's the catch here. Alistar says he has to tell them a lot. He tells the origin story of Magic Island, saying an unknown phenomenon formed it ten years ago. He says there are multiple Magic Islands, quote, superpositioned with the other world around the globe, unquote. Other world is one word, like other world is the term for a place. The ability to now see mortals, basic humans, also surrounded by magic, is a result of their worlds forming closer and closer together, crossing over each other. As magic has crept more and more into the basic mortal muggle world, people have welcomed it, thinking it could usher in a new utopic era. The boys start flashing back to memories of being little kids, going to magic classes, and just it being a part of their upbringing to prepare wizarding skills. It turns out the Magic Island theme park also has real magic within its walls, and you realize how real it is as you get older. Alistar says he knew they were the ones, not just by seeing their magic, which is a huge, huge quantity, but by seeing them keep using it despite the causalities. Because he says your strength comes from basically not what you do, but how you overcome what you have to do. Causalities usually limit what you can do. That's why DK could only help them up into a point, and then actually Vekin had to step up and help shield him. DK was getting weaker over time because of the excessive causality. But these boys seem to have infinite energy despite causality piling up. Alistair talks about the dragon of the end being, quote, the origin of all magic. That word, the origin, makes them recall what that cat said about provoking the origin concept, introducing that into their world. Alistair gives this impassioned speech, quote, to prevent humanity from succumbing to nature that cutting-edge science could not control or dying from illness before new treatment is developed, we need even more powerful magic. We cannot achieve utopia with magic that only a few people can use. We need leadership from powerful wizards like you. When the boys of destiny deserve to stand before the dragon of the end, the gates to a new era will finally open. Therefore, your job is no longer to perform on stage. Leave Star One, unquote. Notable that by the time he's at the end of this spiel about, look, get the music out of your life, your new task is saving the world, ushering in the new utopia. When he's nearing the end of that speech, Lote appears in the background, arms crossed, brow furrowed, eavesdropping. I really grew to actually like Eugene even more in episode 19, because he really defends Star One. 
He's like, we have to do both. I'm not cutting music out of my life. It will empower us, energize us to keep going and actually help us then with the other task. Don't belittle the importance of music in saving lives is basically what he's saying. We shouldn't just call it trivial and just knock it out of our schedule entirely, deem it a waste of time completely, and then just jump into saving the world. Saving the world and using the power of music are connected goals. Love, love, love that message. He also calls the proposal to just leave Star One, quote, nonsense. There's another new careful what you wish for moment when they get back to the mansion room. And DK is there looking at all these different headlines that they've been generating still. And while the members are just really hyped and fanboying over themselves and their newfound success, DK now says the agency still is kind of not satisfied because the sheer volume of these headlines is overwhelming and overpowering music. So he said, we're gonna let this press round run its course. Just step back, let the news cycle finish, and go back to promo and focusing on music later. So we're temporarily just going to kind of back down from press for now. So just as the boys' career was really gaining momentum, now it feels like they had too much momentum and they cancel a bunch of upcoming promo, which is one of the reasons I continue to be a bit skeptical of DK's motives, because as much as he seems protective of them, he also seems continually sabotaging their own prospects. What's notable, not just to me, but to the members themselves, is the phrase locked up that Lo uses when talking about their status right now. Alistair has painted this rosy picture that they're at this mansion, his guest home, like vacation guests, and the men of the hour, the special, special, special guests. And now she calls them locked up, like they're prisoners here. Very different connotation. Lo assures, look, your group is tier one now. You guys can get away from this shady investment group, find better, more trustworthy management. But Soul worries because now they're in so deep, they don't want to get on Alistair's bad side. And as much as they want to hound him with questions, insisting he elaborate about all these different vague answers he's given, they really fear his wrath and the threat of him rescinding material support for Star One if he gets angry. We're sending support materially at best. Meanwhile, episode 20 reveals Alistair and a colleague, who I'm just going to keep calling AC, Alistair's colleague, they have a conversation about staying on Lot's good side, worried about a mother's wrath, and because they think her power is such that she will definitely be let into the gates of the new utopian magic power-fueled society. She'll be in that special future for only eligible magicians. So they're like, we have to live with her in the next life. Let's stay on her good side, especially so that we can use the boys of destiny to create this utopia in the first place. There are a couple really revealing moments in Alistair and his colleagues' talk. One is that when asked how it went, just talking to the boys, Alistair says, quote, they're kids who don't know what really matters. They'll learn with guidance from an adult like me. As the legend says, on the day the dragon of the end resurrects, only humans with magical abilities will survive. The new era will only have such superior humans and create a world free of all constraints. The dragon sect will be remembered in history for having prepared for this day and starting a new chapter for humankind. We must commit ourselves to the resurrection of the dragon of the end. I'll do anything, even teach kids, for our great cause, unquote. 
really wild that he's really belittling them like, ugh, children. I'll teach these children the ways of the world. So patronizing. Yet when he's around them, he talks them up like they're all that and they're very special. But clearly he's more looking down on them when they're not around. And it's also revealing that he thinks he knows better. They'll learn from my guidance. And again, makes me think about the deeper meaning of Eugene's talk with him. Eugene's defense of the power of music and Alistair's view of power as the more narrow, control-focused, less metaphorical, just straight-up, strength-related definition of power. It's viewed as silly and still so naive to think of any power coming from more than brute force, basically. A so-called magic analyst has been recruited to keep spying on DK this whole time. So AC gives an update to Alistair about what this analyst has found. And it turns out the whole time they're at this mansion, DK has been projecting some minor waves of magic energy. Not so much to be noticed if you don't look for it, but enough to raise questions about how he can sustain doing this, considering the causalities it would presumably cause to mount up but also why he feels the need to kind of create a protective, continuous bubble while they're here. Alistair thinks DK probably took one of those potions, and that's why he can keep sustaining this magic usage for so long. Alistair instructs AC to make sure Lo isn't following them. And he also says, just again to reiterate, reminder that the boys need to remember, those who don't understand their own weaknesses are going to perish and not make it into the new era. That's not ominous at all. Alistair enters the portal into Dragon Peak, and then part two of the episode switches to reveal more about Lot and Sol's relationship. I love this part for really getting into the three-dimensionality of these characters, because they show their wise beyond their years, talking about just this desire for Sol to be feel encouraged to strengthen his relationship with his mom, patch things up. But then after Lot leaves the room, they really fanboy over her when it really hits them. Oh my gosh, we just had a deep conversation with Superstar Lot. Man, we should have asked for autographs and stuff. Maybe we could collab with her someday. Because it shows both how the bandmates are really just there for each other emotionally. Very willing to be vulnerable together. But it also shows their juvenile instincts they still have as they then pivot to thinking about what's in it for them. It's not just about Soul feeling whole by restoring a relationship with his mom. It's also about what's in it for them if Lot is a bigger part of Soul's life. Lot reflects on, tells stories about Soul as a little boy. He gets embarrassed and kind of laughs it off. Lot and the boys kind of laugh with him. She recalls his transformation from being so cold and untrusting to just being warmer and more open as a person. She credits the members with this growth and thanks them. She actually says, quote, as Sol's mother, she wants to thank them for helping her kid blossom. Lo is more just light and cheerful and seems so much more carefree than ever, just reflecting on her son and just sharing memories of him, not talking in apocalyptic terms or even just serious adult matters of any kind, just thinking about the past as a mom. This is the first time we see her without her guard up and talking as a member of this Slayer group. We finally get to see what she's like just as a mom in those moments. She also admits she was kind of a strict and cold parent. 
But she did that because she was very protective over him, concerned about him, and she felt like the reason he felt so cold and distant was partially her fault for keeping that cold environment. And it's just interesting because it shows how Sol really felt like the lacking person in their dynamic. But Lo also felt like she had been lacking in letting him down too. And maybe neither of them would have felt like that if they had just been embracing this home life of open communication, honest expression. The boys are really sweet here. They're like, no need to thank us. Sol is really helping us a lot. Eugene's like, well, but he does annoyingly worry a lot. And they all kind of laugh. Lo heads back to work and says, thank you again. Please keep looking out for him. She tells the other members. Episode 21 continues that scene as they fanboy over her once she leaves, like I can't believe that happened. Again, they suggest that he focus on talking to his mom more, working with his mom professionally. They bring up the possibility of collaborating with her, but yet again, even after this talk, he's cagey, he's like, eh, I don't know, she's probably busy, won't want to still. And Eugene rolls his eyes and is like, there you go again, worrying too much. Meanwhile, Lot is going to confront Banya face to face. He's mad that she's not just doing what she's told, but she's saying we need to prepare for future incidents more to limit casualties. She's also like, there were those sisters trapped in the glass box, waiting and cowering in fear for the end of the attack. You're roping in innocent fans, innocent civilians. Why can't we find a way to get the boys without any civilian harm whatsoever? She says, quote, We shall slay the dragon of the end that dares to judge our world. We shall fight for the survival of all beings, unquote. After her initial outburst, she goes back into her impressive persuasion mode. She recalls when Banya was first made the leader because they saw intense, impressive powers with magma Banya could flex. And then she also recalled feeling like he deserved better. He's such a king. He needs to protect his magma powers, not face causalities that he will have to if he continues to lead this operation. She also reminds him, we agreed to be willing to even sacrifice ourselves for this cause, but that doesn't apply to non-magic holders, mere muggles caught up in what we're doing. She then turns on the motherly charm, saying, quote, You were young but not foolish. You used to fully understand the Dragon Slayer clan's values. You were not sure whether you could defeat a dragon to the end, the great being that could devour the world. What is more, you must bear the causality, whether you win or lose. You have become fearful, have you not? You only need to decide whether you will revisit the clan's principles in preparation for the battle at the end, or step down. The causality for using magic is strong enough to put your life at risk. I would be happy to bear it myself, unquote. She then says he'd be, quote, crushed by the causality, unquote, and insists, quote, that is not for you to worry about, unquote. So she basically finds three ways to persuade him at once. She takes the comforting tone of, I want to treat you like a king. You deserve to just rest easy and not worry about being in charge. She also takes the shaming approach, like, your approach so far has been way too risky and unnecessary. You're ruining your legacy. And then the third way is by making it sound so simple. It's a simple choice. Step down or go reflect on our true values on this mission. You're failing. If you want to stop being a loser, you'll pick one of those two options quickly. 
And episode 22 starts with him agreeing. And he hands over this eye mask he's been wearing to Lote. And when she puts it on, she has officially taken the role he had as leading the Dragon Clan mission. Banya even goes so far as to apologize for letting her down and volunteering himself to work the front lines of battles to be held accountable for his bad direction. Right away, Lote dives into explaining her new plan. She says what we can do, instead of possibly maiming and hurting and traumatizing mortal civilians, we can just work on focusing our magic and doing so more with the supplementary power of black water that makes up for weak spots. She also says utilizing a supplement for our magic with black water is worth it because we just don't have any more time to try a different option. So this is the practical shortcut. We don't have time to recruit a bunch of more magicians. We don't have time to up the intensity too much of the lessons of the current magicians in training. Manpower is what it is now, locked in. So let's focus on supplementing it. It's also a way to buy some time because like the potions, it can help keep their energy up while fighting. In another interesting moment showing Lot's true character, Banya questions, if you really want to do this, think of your son, but Lot looks really pained and admits it is too late. He's involved, the boys of destiny are involved, there's no turning back. The only way he wouldn't be involved was if we nipped it in the bud, stopped him from learning of his powers in the first place, and snuffed him out. But because we didn't, there's no way to get him out of this, therefore he's at risk, and I just have to live with that as a mom. And she looked really pained when saying that. She also says somehow soul's power will allow them to track locations of people. So that's a new twist to his powers that was not revealed before, although I guess we did already know he could see the future. There are some really fun, interesting moments where we see the dynamic between DK and the band on display. They go really quickly from teasing him like a big brother, joking around with him, to getting on his nerves because they're complaining about their busy schedules. Then AC approaches DK with a suitcase full of vials, single-use bottles of potion. Side note, this would be an interesting merch idea to sell a kind of flavored drink like the Star Seekers potion because it's described here as kind of being harsh at first, but the aftertaste being good, like some sort of fizzy soda. They can make a lot of money off of that, just a thought. Anyway, DK continues to have a weird poker face, super expensive, and AC is offering him a literal suitcase full of them, which is shady and kind of tempting. And AC thinks so too, so when DK just turns around and walks away, declining the potions, she's like, what the heck? I just offered him basically thousands of dollars worth of magic elixir for free, and he just walked away, doesn't trust it. Then she starts wondering, why did I think he would trust it? And starts looking through her private investigator file she's been keeping on him, thinking she had gotten him all figured out, but now second-guessing if she had overlooked something about his character while creating this profile of him, as if he's a suspect in a criminal investigation. Really pivotal moment at the start of episode 23. Right after the UVIC CEO greets them with saying, we're ready to provide you with all the support you need. We are in this journey with you. We're here to support you, whatever you need. All the stuff he says whenever they get a good blitz of headlines, not when the chips are down, just when they're up. He's back in that praising mode, like, they're my special men. Then we have this key quote from Soul, where he's thinking, quote, It feels as if something is sucking me into a black hole or an endless swamp. 
We will circle back to that quote later, but keep it in mind. We see Vikan in his variety of modes, his just happy, cheerful, youthful mode, and his more solemn, skeptical moments. And just classic details that show their true brotherly love for each other, like Eugene joking that Sol needs to stop worrying or all his hair will fall out, and Sol basically joke punching him about that. Vegan asks if DK will come to Dragon Peak with them, and he says yes. Vegan sounds so relieved, and DK expresses surprise, like, I thought you were the kind of bold guy who loves adventure and wouldn't care if I was there or not. Wouldn't suddenly get shy in public. So all the characters learn more about each other. A portal opens up to Dragon Peak. Sol has a premonition again, but keeps it to himself as he steps into the portal, finds out Dragon Peak looks exactly like he predicted. It's basically a Magic Island subdivision, based in London. The members find out that they are prohibited from wandering outside of certain restricted areas, because they don't have passports, is the excuse. So they're being told not to look behind the curtain, basically, past a certain area, because it's a passport issue. They have to stay in the hidden zone, because if they get caught, they don't have the proper passports, they're going to be in huge legal trouble. But it just also feels very sketchy. Like, Alistar and company are hiding something from them. Don't want them to see some metaphorical man behind the curtain. In episode 24, it starts with another classic moment between DK and the boys. Because they're eager to explore. And DK has to remind them, we're not on vacation. We're here for work. We also see a classic split between the members, with the older members super contentious, staying in, resting after this wild week, and the younger members are just eager to get out and sightsee, which DK allows them to do a bit after some reluctance. A few of the members decide to take the potions, and they seem to get a big energy boost from it. It helps with fatigue, as well as just magical ability. In a revealing moment, AC admits the potions are made from black water from Magic Island. This is just my theory, but I feel like the potions are analogous to steroid use. That's a whole essay for another day, but just saying. This is a moment, again, where I question what DK is really up to in terms of how much he's really out for their best interest. Because he does just let them take these potions. He's sitting there watching. And he doesn't say, no, stop, or try to talk him out of it. So before, he was very skeptical, like, these potions are sketchy, not touching them. But he'll let other people touch them? I don't know, left me with a weird feeling. Anyway, AC takes them to see this old tower. Sol realizes he had a premonition about that too. The next place they visit kicks off, episode 25, at this magical library, full of all kinds of different spell books, and they start talking over dinner that night about the kind of training they're going to do that Alistar's team will help them with, explaining that they're not really going to be trained in the kind of way where they have to figure out what their powers are or grow their power. For these boys, their focus should be on containing their power, figuring out how to keep control over it, use it more skillfully. Alistar asks if there's anything in particular they hope to find in the library, books about, and Tahoe holds up the spell book, like, I want to learn more about this and why text keeps appearing in it, but only slowly. Alistar gulps and looks really nervous, like, holy wow, I can't believe you have that book, but kind of just then doesn't talk about it. There's another moment here that I love that just shows that the story is keeping it moving, but also stopping to make room just to show the characters being themselves. Because there's a moment in this episode where Eugene is joking with Vika and like, you voluntarily entering a library? 
But then he ends kind of reassuringly, just like, it's okay, just a joke, I know you are a hardworking student, even though you don't like to read. There's also time made in the episode just to show their youthful sides, where their eyes just glow with delight and excitement as AC hints at this ghost story, a ghost could be among them in the main castle. Later, AC is on a Bluetooth call with someone else from the company, and they're saying DK's being sus. It's notable they say this is the hourly check-in, so apparently they 24-7 spy on DK and have been sharing status updates every single hour. And now they're concerned because he's not following his norm. He's string, he's wandering, just out for a walk. So they're worried about that, what he might come across. They also worry that he's approaching a watchtower. They're very nervous, and the audience doesn't really know yet why. But they keep calling him a risk factor to their whole mission. Episode 26. The members have a big, busy, fun day of training, practicing magic, with greater results than ever. Bow and arrow usage, swordsmanship, controlling the plants and their powers, creating a dragon, summoning a dragon, more fully formed than previously summoned dragons. They're really just improving. And as they excitedly recap their successes that day over dinner, DK is really in a bad mood. He just shows up quickly and is like, don't forget, early start tomorrow, and leaves. And they're like, join us for dinner, and he's like, no thanks. He's really just, something's really bugging him, he's very cross. The boys talk among themselves like, is this just regular cold decay, or is something really wrong? Episode 27, really meaningful scene. They're in the middle of a big promo day as Star One. And after a televised interview, one interviewer approaches them to thank them. And he says, you know those two girls who you saved that were stuck in the floating cube but saved during that attack on stage? Those were my sisters. You saved their lives. And he expresses just his profound gratitude to them. This moment really hits home for them, and I view it as very symbolic of their whole story. Like Eugene has been going on about, their songs save lives in more ways than one. And here we're just talking literally, they saved a life. But it's kind of, I think, about their presence and the importance of them continuing to be this unified music group. That's not a trivial thing to do. They're really saving people's lives out here. They're really changing the world for the better. And they realize they have the power to do that through soft power as much as brute force, through things like music. Eugene even admits in this episode he used to be skeptical of the need for and desire for magic. What good would that power do? But now he's come around to it because of this. This is also when Tahoe, for the very first time in the series, but also probably in his life, says I'm proud of myself. Their pride in themselves truly does feel new. Just this new, fresh energy bathes them as they think about the fact they saved a life. They're realizing their true impact and how much they value that responsibility. Then they're in the library, and Taho is asking questions to AC like, why is the dragon sect the only main magic-related group that we're talking about? And AC says the others, well, they have magic, but way smaller in value. Few can handle it like you, so don't worry about their impact. Which could also be read kind of symbolically. Like, maybe they think the same about you, that your impact is nothing, but I don't know. I would keep an eye out for future references of these different sectors outside of the dragon one. Tao asks, why do these, what he calls the terrorist groups, attack other wizards with their magic? And AC says, quote, that's a good question. They're a backward group who believe the world is better off without magic. 
The reincarnation of the dragon symbolizes the convergence of magic in the modern era. If a group can't keep up with the times and only brings harm to society with magic, why justify their existence? But interestingly enough, they were bold enough to name themselves the Dragon Slayer Clan, meaning they aimed to slay the dragon for righteousness' sake. Unquote. Translation? This group wants to foil plans to create a new magical utopia world, thinking that actually the world would be better, not fully immersed in magic, but the opposite, take out all the magic and kill the ultimate source of it, this dragon, even if it involves civilian casualties along the way. Not sure how reliable AC is in her interpretation, maybe take it with a grain of salt, but it's an interesting new twist to the story, that there may be an active force pushing for the opposite of them. At least that's what she wants them to think. Episode 28, they start training and are told to basically really focus on lean into magical abilities, don't worry about gravity and things like that. They get one target after another hurled at them. And at this point in the story, truly, visually, it's very well done. The subtle ways they enhance the details to really reinforce how much Star One's magic really has improved. It's really bigger and more impactful. The illustrations just really bring that home in really subtle ways. But anyway, but they're still not pros at this. And that's made quite obvious because as they're trying to deflect from targets, they start out okay, but then they are asked to split up between offense and defense. Three on offense, trying to deflect the target still. Two on defense, focused on just shielding each other, protecting the group from the targets. Tahoe fails to stop a burst of magic that ends up striking a crowd of onlookers. These onlookers, it's notable that earlier them cheering them on from the sidelines really just seems to make Beacon's day. It's another thing like with Jinyan's messages to Tahoe, where you can see how those just little gestures to show you care really mean the world to these characters. That's what true magical relationships are about, that give you the motivation to keep going. The girl who is most visibly shaken up by being hit with the magic blast they failed to deflect, she's got her head in her hands crouched over. Vikan asks if she's okay. She looks up and starts fangirling because, oh my gosh, Star One is right here. That immediately segues into episode 29, when the boys are awestruck too. They're recognized. They're finally recognized. Vikan is extra sweet about it. He's like, I wish our schedule wasn't so packed that we can't even spend five minutes sending autographs for them. Now they'll leave empty-handed, which they do. Back to their lessons. It starts raining black water, and this is when Alistair teaches them about this precious resource, which continues to be mysterious because the reason practice ends early that day is because the black water rain is not letting up anytime soon. So they try to get out of the rain, but the rain is the purest form of magical power. So you'd think they want to practice more, actually, on rainy days. That condition would actually enhance their magic, but I guess not. Elster describes it as, quote, the end dragon's blessings, unquote, a vital resource. When given an unexpected afternoon off due to the rain, the boys again show their very different personalities based on how they spend that free time. Some want to go study or just chill out. Others want to go exploring. And the two that go exploring want to see the big castle, what it looks like post-rain. And of course, they've heard the ghost stories and want to check it out for themselves. More on that in a second. We see, though, meanwhile, in the library, Tahoe is really getting good at this spellbook. He can basically use it to 
He's really the boss of it. He just can magically throw it up in the air now and say, do this or that. And the book can kind of somewhat help him with that. There are always so many caveats with magic. So he throws it up and asks if the book can help him find resources about other world tribes. Other world, one word, like the tribes of the other world. Because he's trying to figure out and research Soul's premonitions, why Soul can see the future. It's notable that Alistair watches Tahoe do this with the spell book from behind a corner. Covertly, he's spying on him, looking impressed and amazed at how much Tahoe can do with that spell book. Which made me think, since Alistair and DK go way back since their trainee days, and DK previously watched Tahoe use the book with amazement. Like, I can't believe you can read the once invisible print. It showed itself to you. DK and Alistair both being so shocked by the use of the spellbook just makes me think they have a history with it too. Like they tried to do what Tahoe does and they couldn't do it. And maybe that's why they both are not famous and flopped, maybe dropped out of school or training. I don't know, just a theory that he surpassed what they dreamed of doing. Meanwhile, the boys exploring the castle are approached from behind by a girl holding a candle. She asks why they're there, because they might want to be where. Quote, a black cat's soul rests in that corner. It gets very cranky on days like today, so it might pull some naughty pranks on you. One of my friends came by here on a rainy day, on a dare. He got spooked, fell to the ground, and broke his leg. Unquote. That's when the boys decide, okay, yeah, this is enough for today. But as they walk away, the episode ends where we see this girl say, they are mine, and she turns into... That magical cat, the one with one blue eye and one green eye. Maybe she meant the black cat soul in the corner was her, like it's within her, or maybe it's a separate cat. Unclear. The members, except Soul, who's still asleep, reconvene in episode 30. Eugene is wondering if Tahoe can use his magic to conjure up a mirror so they can watch their formations, check it out while dancing, see if their choreography needs some improvement. Tahoe is able to, without a hitch, he creates this mirror just with so much ease. A big mirror, too, like a dance practice studio mirror. What makes this extra notable is not just his newfound ability to do that, but also that it doesn't tire him out. He really can just do that and act like nothing happened. So his causality is either non-existent or next to nothing. So small. It's like the kind of paper cut you don't realize you've got. It's kind of like that. And so Tahoe guesses maybe, like the drill earlier, when we had to split up offense versus defense, maybe honing in on just what skill each of us specifically excels the most at can help us in the long run. Maybe we can actually get away relatively causality-free if we conserve our energy for when we need it. But you need less energy for what you're good at and see as just easy to do. You can kind of go on autopilot for that stuff. So maybe they can actually sustain longer battles without even potions as supplements if they each just contribute what they're best at instead of trying to do everything. This is a great life lesson too. That overall theme of you need each other still in this world, but you each have an individual important contribution for the full picture. Just another way this story is speaking volumes about the world, not just in the story. Tahoe shares some of the research he's been doing. He's figured out, for sure, Avi's, you're an ornith. That is your winged bird heritage. In myself, I must be a Noctua, a creature with gemstone eyes from which a lot of power comes. 
And I'm not sure about Sol, but I'm pretty sure he's an elf. As he says that, we see Sol having a nightmare slash seeing the future. And there's a city on fire and just flaming chaos. So much destruction. With Vikan and Avi both appearing to save the day with their magic. Sol wakes up from this nightmare with visible elf ears. And that's where episode 30 leaves off. Now, some big broad takeaways. Here are 17 things we still don't know. 1. The long-term effects of drinking these potions. Maybe there are some hidden downsides. 2. How Lo is going to do as mission leader. Will she stay in Banya's good graces, or will he eventually want his job back? 3. Why DK is being spied on. What Alistair and AC are hiding. What are their true motives? 4. What really happened to Jinyun, Tahoe's friend, who now has medical issues because he tried to take a shortcut to magic powers? What really happened there? 5. How Lo and Sol will, or will not, try to repair their relationship? 6. What further causalities will be in their future? 7. What was that cat on about, with talking about the origin? 8. What the spellbook is all about? why it only partially shows up, why the text keeps appearing just little by little, what triggers that, and how come everybody can't see it. 9. How the members' powers will evolve, how they will or will not really step into those powers. 10. How Star 1 will continue to try to balance their time as a band with their time saving the world, and how their fans may react to that dual task. The Tent Scene Revelations what that was all about, who is the hooded figure who is predicting their fortunes, and what did she mean by, I will help you figure out your true name. What back in episode 2 was that guy talking about when he said, lure them into my trap by making use of what matters most to them. What does that mean? What have they been making use of? Have they been using Lot and DK as pawns? Is the black water that the potions are made out of the same black water Lot was talking about? And if so, is there a very specific supply left? And when that runs out, will people point fingers at each other? What really is Magic Island? That remains a question because descriptions seem to vary a lot. How much the muggle world, the mortals know about it. How much it's really a utopia, a special place where magic is concentrated. How much it's real versus in just these dreams, these premonitions. In some TXT songs, they sing about being in chaos. Light chaos is the name of a place, so that could be what they're talking about here. There are also times where TXT in their videos seem to be on Magic Island, but then it looks like, turns out, you zoom out and it was just kind of a, a dream, or it was happening in a work of art, like they either imagined or just transported themselves into an alternate world for those scenes. What were those bracelets? In episode 13, during the attack, some members left without a scratch on them, and it was probably because of the magic bracelets that they were suddenly wearing. What were those? How long-term is Alistair's plan, and what happened to their luggage? Are they really locked up, trapped, living in this mansion? Because they asked, hey, where's our stuff? Why is it not here yet, our bags? And he was like, eh, it's on the way. Was it really? Where's their stuff? How long is he going to keep them there? I think basically what touched me about this series was how three-dimensional and nuanced these characters are and their dynamics with each other. Same with TXT's music video characters and their plot, layered with meaning, symbolic, literal, 
fantasy world stuff mixed with less high-stakes subplots, bickering among members and stuff. They really just encapsulate the mind of young boys. They bring to life the specific mentality they wanted to. They make it seem realistic, like if these characters were real, that is probably how they would act. The webtoon also raises a lot of interesting moral dilemmas, deeper thought-provoking problems. And overall, the message of how you use magic can't even save you sometimes. So let's redefine magic. What's true magic that helps us get through these challenging lives, these trials and tribulations? Each character is really worth thinking about. You've got Avi's, Hyunin Kai, who has wings and summons animals, but is trying to really control when he administers that force. You've got Sol and his mom, who they love each other, but they're really struggling to express it. Because Lota's trying to balance her appreciation she expresses for him with worry, guardedness, concern. And he's trying to live up to expectations that he doesn't fully understand because he never asks her what exactly these expectations he assumes she has are. There's Viken, who seems very happy-go-lucky, but the trees kind of turn against him at times. He's still very out of his element, overestimating what he can do at times. You could tell he really wants to trust DK, but questions about what DK is all about and his backstory remain. There's Taho, who's dealing with the whole causality premise, which brings up a host of related questions about when you do this, what are the ripple effects of what you did? Are you still willing to do that knowing what those effects are? And how do you choose who to help in serious situations? Questions like that he has to deal with a lot. And it's interesting because he's kind of getting closer than some of the other members to figuring out what true magic is because he feels magically happy. Like he lights up full of energy every time he gets a notification, another text from Jinyoung, which shows these bonds are where some true magic lies. There's Eugene, who's struggling at first just to be accepted. He's the oldest, but not the leader. And he takes so long to actually step into his power, get some magic. And now he may face long-term consequences. Because as much as he's denied all along, I think magic is overrated. He eagerly said, yeah, I want power, when that cat said she could offer it to him. The concept of causality is one of the biggest ones that I'll actually elaborate on. One of my essays about the Star Seekers will definitely have to cover causality because the concept is so fascinating to me. And remember, in TXT's music videos, they've been hinting at causalities too. The physical presence of a sign they used magic. There were the scars that magically appeared out of nowhere in Nap of a Star. There's the injury from Runaway that was magically healed by the end of the video also part of Magic Island. And it's very interesting in hindsight that the message in shock behind Yeonjun in Thursday's child promo pictures says cost. Like this comes at a cost for him, for his character Eugene, who took all that power. Just saying. So one of the main interesting issues to think about that the webtoon raises is causality. Another is about what it means to save someone, the different forms that can take. Because you could argue Jinyun saved Taho, just like Taho saved Jinyun. One with the magical power sent his way, the other just with cheering him up, keeping him motivated, making him feel worthy of a relationship, of a friendship. Then of course they literally save fans' lives. Eugene is reflecting on how much he values what they do as a group, regardless of magic usage or not. 
And there's Alistair's telling, misjudging of what's important, saying these kids think the music is so important. They don't know what really saving people should look like. They should subscribe to my idea for an ideal utopic future. And if they can't see that idea as worth putting everything on the line for, they're deluding themselves. That's the egotistical, I think, way Alistair looks at this. Like, this is the prophecy. It's not just a possible future. It better happen, and I'm going to make these kids do it. The webtoon also raises interesting questions about worthiness and metrics for worthiness. Because the CEO, he just does not clearly care about them. Unless they make money in headlines. No one on set of filming Music Bank cared either that they would get startled, that members would get injured. As they practiced, they were like, at the drop of a hat, they would say, that's it, wasting our time, goodbye. There are so many scenes where the members talk among themselves about how much they support Eugene and wish he would understand he's a valuable asset to the group, magic or not. But at the same time as they have those talks, Eugene is still self-loathing, going on the angry walk thinking, what's the matter with me? I'm not helping the group. I'm not useful. Fourth main theme, desperation. The key to manifesting magic, DK says, it's desperation plus concentration. It's just an interesting new way to think about the word desperate, given this negative connotation of you're just too much of something. But what if you should care that much, that you should describe it as desperate? And what does that look like in practice? Now let's talk my theories. Not just what the show raises, but what I think it does. More am I just theorizing out their thoughts about how the TXT music videos play into all of this. So with Avi's, Hunikai's character, in the videos he has mechanical wings at times, he has birds and squirrels around him, that glass box he gets trapped in, that in a separate video Subin does, made me think of the glass box trapping, but ultimately protecting, those girls during the mid-show attack. Taho, Taehyun, is the bookish character in the videos too, although they all think about that spellbook. Seems notable, though, that Taehyun is literally chained up in the Puma video. He's a character that's chained up, feels restricted. When he feels that way in the webtoon, he finds a sense of freedom and power in the spellbook. For Yeonjun, one of the biggest moments in their music videos is, I think, when he is at the top of a cliff and he looks down and sees himself, like an old injured version of himself. Definitely brought up causalities in my head. As well as the thought, what if, like the cat was hinting at, there is some sort of parallel world, and maybe you reach the point of max causalities in that world, so you basically die in one world, but you're still existing in the other. Also notable that his character and the others do encounter those glowing cat eyes in several videos. Yeonjun is also the character in the story who stays behind when the others get up to leave in the runaway video, watching a door go up in flames. His you-guys-go-on-I'll-stay-here decision, which he also has with the dance practice video where he's off to himself, it just feels very much like a parallel to how Eugene pushes away the others for fear that he's lacking and will just bring the group down. There's the car crash scene. Just made me think of the car-off-a-cliff antics of the Loser Equals Lover video, and I know that could be quite a stretch to compare those things, but I don't know, stuff goes down when they're in a car. 
There's the motherly and brotherly love in this webtoon. Same as in the videos where the members, you see moments where they're laughing and making fun of each other. Like when one of them gets drenched in a water droplet when they shrink down and dance through the forest in Blue Hour. And they'll kind of make fun of him for it. And then there are a lot of moments that are just sweet where they're reading together in the library, enjoying each other's company, acting like young friends. And we also see a mother's love too. There's a scene where in the Eternity movie, Subin encounters a younger version of himself who may be looking for his mother but is stranded. And other times where a woman does approach him like a mother to embrace this struggling child. Another far-fetched thought I had. So there's a green light coming from the force field Vekin emits to save DK. Green light is also the key color filling the tunnel as Yunjun is riding and then crashes his motorcycle in Good Boy Gone Bad. The green lighting also backlit a scene where we see a character grow these horns in room number 17, that chapter of one of their short films. They've also previously done what this webtoon addresses head-on about true names when they go into that tent to try to see what the fortune teller can reveal about what their true names are, their true identities. They brought that up in the Eternity video, writing on the fogged-up mirror, Remember My Name. They also call out, quote, an unfamiliar name, there's fade or something else, means I don't understand, unquote, in Frost. And some of their teaser images, like the teaser poster for the Frost video, say, I don't know who's this voice calling out to me, what's my fate, what's my name, like, what is destined to happen for me? There's also the premonition, not just Soul has, but in part two of one of their short films, the words on the screen are, quote, I always tear up after waking up from a familiar dream. Please stop this recurring nightmare, unquote. That black hole quote, feeling like you're getting sucked into a, a black hole, an endless swamp, that made me think of the quote that starts off the Love Song video from Kang Yujun, called an excellent metaphor for a hole in life, manhole. Part of the quote on the screen is not the full thing, so I'll read the full quote because it's really thematically appropriate. Quote, A period of growth can be considered a universal whole that is placed in anyone's life at a certain point. However big or small, as we pass that period of time, we experience spiritual hunger and an empty whole. But to some boys, the whole becomes such a complex shape too frequently and intrudes in their lives. Unquote. To me, he's basically saying the thing nagging at you may really take on a life of its own and spread into other parts of your life. But you could also say it's an analogy here for the kind of magic that is now not contained. It's out of the box now, cat's out of the bag. Whether they like it or not, their influence and their magical influence especially are impacting the world around them, taking on a life of their own that feels like they're getting sucked into something they didn't sign up for because it is still kind of new to them and out of their control, out of their hands. Seems notable that in the Puma video, the villains are these masked figures in all black, just like Banya and company. There's also the reference the cat made to stopping time, and then all the flashbacks in the webtoon that made me think of how the whole premise of part of TXT's story is the frozen in time chapter. All the plants and greenery that surround the members in different TXT videos to me just brings to mind now Vekin and his plant powers or the opposite when evil plants kind of take over but they're definitely a big presence in their lives. 
The magical subway ride that starts off the webtoon made me think of the subway, or the train rather, they take in one of their short films, speeding into this magical new world. There's, of course, the Ferris wheel and garden, the Magic Island setting. That's what Blue Hour is set in. The Antlers from Nap of a Star. You could also argue that both the Webtoon and TXT music videos literally make fashion statements. Use outfits to tell bigger stories, like how Yunjun wears a key for an earring and Subin wears the lock. Then now you have, in the webtoon, the dragon symbol on the rings. Just a constant reminder with those close-up moments of their hands in the illustrations. Like, yep, we're sending a signal. Remember our identity, our signature rings, indicating we're part of this dragon slayer group. The final text on the screen, in the Eternity video, feels extra relevant now. Quote, in the blink of an eye, the boys felt they've returned from a long journey. The widening space between us, scribbles that unfold before our eyes, wait again through this dream. In fear, the boys asked, was it all nothing more than a dream? The boys did not know that this was but the start of the chaotic turmoil, unquote. Much like how this webtoon was teased as a story about boys who had no idea what they were getting into, what chaos awaited them upon becoming magical and becoming tier one stars. They reference entering the abandoned island, another world, an alternate reality, a lot. In Puma, Dear Sputnik, Can't You See Me, Can't We Just Leave the Monster Alive, Frost. In hindsight, this quote from Weavers is really interesting. A Weavers article about their catalog said, quote, The group previously used a worry-free world in the dream chapter Magic as a tool to reveal the darkness that lives on the inside, unquote which interestingly suggests maybe the Magic Island is what their inner world could become if they get rid of the darkness on the inside, or maybe it's that the Magic World already exists and they can't see it because they're so distracted and consumed by the darkness within. Or maybe it's just that the Dream Chapter Magic was a different corner of Magic Island that was a place to focus on making external, practicing the good magic, to kind of drown out the inside dark turmoil. And maybe the carnival setting, the carousel, that is just its own Magic Island subsection, separate from the magical door leading into a new world in Runaway. The cat's best quote, if you ask me, quote, all I'm doing is opening the closed door you've had within you all along, unquote. Lots to think about. Again, more on Substack. But I do want you to kind of reach your own conclusions and think about the interesting premises raised by this webtoon. It really is just remarkable and thoughtful and thought-provoking, so I hope you really spend time appreciating it. We will, of course, cover updates on the show, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all again soon. Bye, everybody!